0: Hey everyone, it's Jonathan, and today I have a bit of a different episode for you, though not completely unprecedented. I've done horror movies before, even old black and white horror movies, but not very often, which is why it always feels like kind of a departure from my usual fare when I decide to do another one. But I would like to diversify what kind of movies I do, so this could become more of a thing more often. We'll see what happens. Anyway, today I'm talking about the 1942 horror film, Cat People, with fellow horror fans, well, I probably shouldn't say fellow horror fans, since I'm not technically one of them. But today I'm joined by AJ Howell and Nikki from Trivial Theater, and I'll explain why I chose to do this when in the episode, so let's just jump right into things. Okay, so I have a strange reason for wanting to do this movie. I
1: was gonna ask, just yeah. because like, I know you've done some of these in the past, but... Like this one specifically is is very outside of like the uh, uh, giant claw. You've not really ventured into this territory.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is a movie poster that's on the wall in the bathroom at my local theater.
2: <laughs> ah.
1: <laughs> that is um. It's one of the more unique reasons to want to review a movie. Not the worst one I've ever heard
0: by any stretch. For sure. I've seen this poster for years, and I've wondered about it. And, like, there's a whole bunch of movie posters on the bathroom wall. They have a wallpaper that goes along the top around the ceiling that has a bunch of old movie posters on it, mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. which I haven't heard of. There's something called Mogambo. Oh, Dodge yeah, that's um, yeah.
1: classic 40. Is it 39 or 40?
2: A uh, 53, I think. It's Clark Gable and Grace Kelly, I think. Okay. I think there's a
0: bunch that are around the same. Like I think they're all the same time period. There's like The Thing and King Kong and Boris Karlov's The Walking Dead. So I think it's all similar era movies. But for some reason, Cat People has just stood out to me out of all of them for years. And I've just <laughs> wondered about it. And then... When I moved back to Harlan, I started going to this theater again. I saw it again. And by that point, I was already doing the podcast. I was like, I should do some of these. And if I ever do, even if I don't get to the others, I at least have to do cat people. (laughs) For sure. Absolutely. And my initial idea was to do it with Nikki because she always does old horror stuff like that. But then (laughs) on, on Twitter... I saw AJ randomly talking about cat people, I was like, wait, somebody
2: else knows about this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I should sure. ask him. <laughs> yeah, for sure, I'd, I'd heard about it, like, a long time ago, I've been a horror fan for forever, and I re- read about it actually in Stephen King's book, Dance Macabre, it's nonfiction horror study, and I thought, that sounds interesting, I'd like to see that sometime, or I should see it sometime, as part of my horror education. And then just a few months ago, I saw it randomly, and I thought that was really cool. I think I'll tweet about it, and yep, and there it is. Nice.
1: <laughs> the Dance Macabre. I've I've got it. I just picked it up at like um, Goodwill. I've not I've not read it yet,
2: but it's good to know that it's good. It's excellent. It was one of my favorite books in high school. I read like two. I've read that copy to pieces. <laughs> so nice. It's kind of like not. Like, you know, like one of those dry, really academic film books, you know? Yeah. It's very much not like that at all. It's very conversational. It's kind of like having dinner with like a friend and he's just talking with you about whatever it is that comes to his mind. All the nerdy interests. It's really good.
1: Well, and I don't think King is capable of like when he tells stories, there are parts he doesn't do great, but when it comes to that kind of stuff, he is anything but dry.
2: for sure. And like his teachery side will come out every once in a while, but not in a way that's like cloying or overbearing, which is nice.
1: That is awesome. Yeah. And a welcome change from a lot of a lot of books in that kind of genre.
2: Oh, for sure. But yeah, that's what introduced me to the movie and I'm happy I finally saw it. Nice. And I'm also writing a horror screenplay right now. And I didn't realize how much I was drawing from Val Luton's movies and his style until I saw cat people. Well, actually, until I rewatched it for this podcast, so that was interesting to see.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm sure so. That's awesome, though. Yeah. And Val Luton, like, his career was so short-lived. Like, can you imagine what he would have done if he would have had more time?
2: I know. I feel like we can see a little bit of that, not to get off on another movie, but, um, of course, Robert Wise worked with him a lot. I know. Like, he was one of his editors, and he actually directed Curse of the Cat People in 1944, And later on, he made The Haunting in 1963 and used a lot of Luton-esque techniques. And I kind of feel like that's what Val Luton would have done had he had the big budget and had CinemaScope and all that kind of stuff to do. So I think you can kind of get a taste of that with that movie.
1: I I would say, too, Jacques uh, Trinor, and I apologize, I probably skewered his name, but um, he was the director on this along with Luton. And... You see a lot of that same feel with like Night of the Demons and movies along those lines too.
2: Oh, for sure, and not only that, but I think it influences film noir as well. Just that very moody black and white cinematography and so on.
1: And this movie, it doesn't like, and maybe I guess early forties, you did have a lot of like this kind of thing or like a Maltese Falcon kind of noir look, but just the way that they did a lot of the stuff. And I'm jumping ahead a bit. I apologize, but it doesn't feel like it belongs in in this decade. Like it feels like it belongs in the 30s to me.
2: That's for sure. It kind of almost feels ethereal. Like it doesn't belong almost in any decade. It almost belongs like in another time. I don't Absolutely. know how to describe it otherwise. Yeah,
1: because well, even everything about that. it, whether you're talking the the story or um the way that it's shot. The, I mean, I guess Luton was kind of timeless as what or yeah Luton yeah sorry I'm getting my words mixed up but a lot of his stuff like it's very much him and you know it's not there's a lot of stuff you can pin down to something that's done in the 70s or done in the 2000s or done in the 20s and this certainly doesn't have the any feel of any decade specifically
2: oh definitely yeah I don't know how to describe it I'm sure we'll get into it as it goes on and maybe that I'll be able to phrase it better when I'm trying to say but <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: we'll put our brains together and figure it out
0: precisely so had you you'd seen this before right nikki
1: yeah i have like tn like or sorry tcm during october like that's my that's my jam it's it's either streaming horror movies or movies on tcm and this one it, it was in a marathon of kind of 40s horror and um i think it ended with a doc about luton and yeah anyway that has nothing to do with it <laughs>
2: it's interesting speaking of luton somebody i I was as i was doing research for this somebody said it's interesting to see a producer who's regarded as the auteur of the films he was behind rather than the director like of course we, we talk about Jacques tourneur and robert wise like later on regarding their other movies but when we talk about cat people or i walked with a zombie or Or the leopard man or things like that we talk about luton first and we don't talk about the directors so much except like it's as a secondary sort of thing it's interesting to see that
1: well and you do and it it happens today too like and not to say that it was those movies were advertised as like a val luton production per se but like you look at um nightmare before christmas the fact that it was a henry selick movie but it's always billed as a tim burton thing or um the candy the recent candy man you know it was a jordan peele produced thing but it was nina lacosta or nina da costa one of the two I, um apologies
2: yeah nia da costa i think
1: yeah i, I think yeah, i think you're right i think it's nina da costa but you know the fact that the the director almost gets a second seat because of the you know the knownness of the
2: director of the producer and of course the infamous Poltergeist debate. Did Toby Hooper direct it or Spielberg? Oh, Hooper totally directed that. I absolutely agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Although it
1: probably wouldn't have gotten quite the traction uh, if it hadn't been for Spielberg, so.
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: Very much a balance.
2: Yes. Did anyone else think that the way
0: this movie started was just weird?
1: That's kind of Val Luton, I think.
2: (laughs)
0: Yeah. Like, so the way she is set up she talks about like she's at the zoo she's drawing a black panther but she says she's not an artist she's a fashion designer and then you like never hear of that again
1: well she it comes back like visually every now and again but yeah as a as an actual plot point it definitely doesn't really make another appearance
2: yeah it's like, you see her briefly drawing, like, a dress right before the Canary incident takes place. Mm. But, yeah, it doesn't ever play, like, a major plot point, except for when you see that first sketch she was doing of the spear going through the panther.
0: It seemed like that was the only reason that they had this scene.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> well, and I think to some extent, because, I mean, unlike a lot of movies of this era, like, ladies, you know, were homemakers, or they were socialites, or whatever— both of the ladies that were kind of the main people in this movie had professions.
0: I did notice that I liked that point absolutely.
1: Yeah. and I think that was maybe the point. The fact that she wasn't just like, oh, I'm just gonna go to the zoo to to stare at the animals and to to make pretty faces and get myself a man like that wasn't the point of it and I, I was I was happy to see that, especially in that time and place
0: yeah. I also thought it was funny. You have the scene where she's she tries to throw something in the trash and misses. And then Oliver, the main character, other than her, he kind of looks miffed at her and he picks up the paper and tosses it. And he points to, like, the most passive-aggressive anti-littering <laughs> sign ever. Yes. <laughs> Let no one say, and say it to your shame, that all was beauty here until you came. <laughs> <laughs>
1: They need more signs like that today.
2: <laughs> Those are the signs that have the biggest effect on me. The ones that like don't yell at me or command me to do something, but the ones that make me feel guilty. It's like, "Okay, I'll put my <laughs> trash away." <laughs>
1: <laughs> and yet she still leaves like a massive piece of paper and I know the reason for it was to yes. kind of show us what was on it, but still,
0: yeah. Yeah, that, that I thought that was kind of annoying on her part. But also amusing, given the focus they put on that sign. But then when it showed it, I was like, okay, yeah, that's why they did it. They wanted to make a point to show that she has a drawing of a cat being stabbed for some reason.
1: Well, that's why the jaguar was frankly quite miffed, was because she was littering. It had nothing to do with the fact that he was an aggressive, you know, wild beast.
2: Trapped in a cement cage.
1: (sighs) Back in the day, man.
2: Uh Uh-huh. And when people call you evil all the time, as that janitor does later on, it's that was it's annoying. sure too. to make you <laughs> a little angry.
1: <laughs> Between that and, the, and his, the, the same song all the time, I mean, change up your, <laughs> your mix a little bit at least.
0: <laughs> but yeah, you have these two characters. I think it's pronounced Irena, who is from Serbia, and Oliver, who is American, and she has recently moved to America. They hit it off, and she tells him that he might be her first real friend in America
1: yay, <laughs> yay.
0: i I thought though it, she must have a low bar for friendship because he was like five minutes ago passive aggressively insulting her littering behavior
1: <laughs> well I mean back in the forties that was a way to turn women on you know you just
0: <laughs> is that called negging
1: <laughs> yeah basically. <laughs>
2: And throughout the whole movie he's very much kind of like your very standard square jawed male lead. Like the movie doesn't really give up him very much to do except to react to all the stuff that's going on around him.
1: But you mm-hmm. know, that was generally speaking, that's normally the role that is given to a woman in that space. So that and, and I'm not I'm not gonna be like beat it over the head, but this movie was had a fair amount of progressive kind of stuff when it came to that. Like even though I'm sure, well, I don't know who got top billing on this, but depending upon who got top billing, the way that it, it's kind of reversed in a lot of ways, you know?
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: Oliver is more reacting to what the two ladies are
2: doing as compared to the, the other way around. That is true. And I like that as well. Side note, while, we're, while we mentioned Oliver's name. The fact that his name was Oliver Reed distracted me as a big fan of character actors (laughs) because I I thought of that a few times while I was watching the movie. Like that, if that was really Oliver Reed as in the actor, he would be drinking a lot more over the course of (laughs) this movie.
1: It's kind of this this version (laughs) of Oliver Reed is kind of the anti character actor
2: (laughs) for sure. Yes,
0: (laughs) I looked at the poster. She has top billing, Simone Simon. Ah. I was wondering, did he ever actually even introduce himself? Because I don't remember him introducing himself. I don't really remember them, like, doing a formal introduction. They were just kind of bantering about litter, and then she invites him back for tea.
1: I mean, back in the 40s, that's how you did it. You know, you didn't find out someone's (laughs) name until the day of your wedding. You just kind of say, hey, you.
2: (laughs) I feel like there are a few parts in this movie where Like, things would happen, and then you wouldn't realize. They would happen between scenes, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I was just going
0: to say, I feel like there was probably a lot more time passing than it felt like there was time passing, because it seemed like they got married, like, two days after they met. (laughs) But I think that maybe in between days, it was actually probably, like, weeks. I'm not 100% sure, but it just seemed like things went
2: really fast. Yeah. That is true.
1: Well, I mean, they had to spend, you know, like two minutes in the dark listening to the cats <laughs> doing their thing while drinking tea. You know, that was their courtship time.
0: <laughs> so romantic.
2: Absolutely. And also in terms of just the production thing, I was reading about the requirements that RKO Studios gave Val Luton, like for these horror movies, which they considered B pictures. And one of them was that the movies had to come in at hundred at $135,000. That was their budget. And they had to be like 75 minutes or less. So Makes sense. So when you're going at that quick a pace, I'm sure you have to have some kind of story shorthand saying, okay, this is what happened in all these days that you didn't see. Sorry, we can't show it to you, but we're on a tight schedule here.
1: (laughs) Well, and this was only shot in 18 days. So roughly there about.
0: Yeah.
2: So tight schedule both ways.
0: (laughs) Very. I wondered about the budget, and I wondered if that had anything to do with the length and the fact that you don't really see much of the cat person. The title seems a bit misleading because there's really only one cat person, (laughs) but you don't really see much of that happen. It's a lot of it is implied.
1: Well, they kind of had to just given I remember reading something on it. Um, I think it was budgetary that they had to um, cut back on a lot of the special effects. Mm hmm. Yeah.
0: In a way, though, I think that's probably for the best because I can imagine that if they tried, it wouldn't have looked very good.
2: Yeah, there's a movie in 1952 with Kirk Douglas called The Bad and the Beautiful where he plays kind of a fictional film producer. And the first part of his career is kind of modeled after Val Luton and his horror deal at RKO. Oh, nice. It is really interesting. And there's a scene in that where they come in where like his costume designers come in with like this really goofy looking monster outfit like it looks horrible <laughs> and they're saying okay well we could do this and this and this and we could light it a certain way and it'll work it'll work and Kirk Douglas kind of is this like his expression doesn't change just sitting there kind of with a with like a expressionless face and then the next scene or two he talks about this new method that he has of like suggesting the monster rather than showing it and so on so I'm sure that that was that that situation also came up on the set of this movie and his other Val Luton productions where the costume was just like, I'm sure this is the best we can do on this budget, but because it's <laughs> just because it's the best doesn't mean that it's good per se.
1: Well, God, look at look at the thing uh from Another World or any, you know, kind of cheesy B movie of the fifties or sixties. I mean, they they follow this same thing. You really don't see the whole monster until like the last couple of minutes, you know, in most cases.
2: Yeah. And of course that's even going up to Jaws. That's why Jaws is the way it is, why you don't see the shark, because it didn't work half the time. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Damn it, Bruce. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that, that I think that works fine though, because I think it at least in the case of Jaws, I think it made it better. Because like I've seen what it could have been, because I've seen like clips and images of like the malfunctions. like I think it works so much better to barely see it except when you have to,
2: yeah.
1: Well, your mind is, your imagination of a lot of that stuff is, is powerful, you know?
2: Mm -hmm. And that is kind of why Stephen King brought it up in his book, Dance Macabre. He was comparing it not only to the movies like Jaws and The Haunting, but also comparing it to like the old horror radio shows in the forties and the fifties. And he was saying that the strength of movies like cat people and The Haunting and those radio shows is that they re- they do rely on your rela- imagination to fill in the blanks. And your imagination will come up with something more scarier than anything any movie could provide, no matter how big the budget is. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. One other thing, too, just as far as on the budget, um, the stairs that they use, so like that whole part of the set, uh, actually, it looked like more than just the stairs, uh, came from The Magnificent Ambersons, which was shot in 42 as well.
2: Yeah, I read that as well. That's That was interesting.
1: Which you can definitely see it, but yeah, it was I, that was fascinating because that's such a that's such a classic uh, movie in its
2: own right, yeah, for sure.
0: I did wonder about the set because it seemed like it seemed like it was more than just an apartment building because it seemed so, I don't know, grand, like it was some kind of a mansion.
1: it didn't really fit the design, especially for that for that time and place. They weren't a hundred percent consistent with that. but
2: they even kind of comment on that in one scene where she first takes him to the apartment and and he says, I've always wondered what it looks like behind one of these brownstones. I'm always surprised what it looks like behind <laughs> one of these brownstones or something like that. So they do make sure to comment on it a little bit.
0: <laughs> and I also wondered, like later on, they get married and he moves in with her, which I thought was interesting. And I wondered if it was because like normally you would have her move in with him, especially in this time period. But I I wondered if it was because she just had a nicer place.
1: <laughs> Chances are good. I mean, and I, I think he was, was it architect that he was?
0: I think he was a ship builder. Or oh, ship, that's right. Ship yeah. designer. Yeah. Let's see. I think I I think I think wrote it down what Wikipedia said, because I don't think he ever said specifically. Right. On Wikipedia, it says he was a marine engineer.
1: Okay. Then she was a fashion designer. So, yeah, I mean, both of them, in theory for the time, would have made decent money.
0: And you never see where he lived before this. No. So yeah. maybe it was partly to save on sets.
1: <laughs> oh, 100%. Well, and if you're if you're filming in 18 days, you're oh, going to yeah. cut it as many corners. Well, not cut corners, but you're going to make as efficient use of your time as possible.
0: Yeah. Well, in this first scene with them at her apartment, you get, I guess, the backstory of the cat people she has this statue of a man holding a sword with a tiny cat impaled on it, which I thought was kind of funny. I don't think it was supposed to be funny. It was like this giant man defeated a tiny kitten.
2: (laughs) It's symbolic of all the evil in the world or something.
1: I wrote down, Floppy, no!
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently where she was from, they were once good Christian people, but they were enslaved by the Mar- Mamluks. Which I was going to look that up. Was that a real thing? Is this is some of this backstory based on something real? And I also uh, thought she was saying Marmadukes, like the dog, yes. <laughs> until I got to Wikipedia.
1: <laughs> okay, the the Mamluks are non Arab, ethnically diverse enslaved mercenaries slave soldiers and freed slaves who were assigned to high ranking military and administrative duties uh serving in the ruling ottoman and arab dynasties of the muslim world so if they were in serbia yeah they, i mean it doesn't that makes sense that they could move over from there
0: i wonder how much of this cat people story is based on like some sort of actual mythology
1: given the time i mean not to say that they didn't come up with stuff but a lot of a lot of the stuff from that era was definitely based in some kind of legend Mm -hmm. like you look at um oh is it isle of the dead or maybe it was white zombies but a lot of that by modern standards and even by standards then, it's not necessarily the most politically correct way of looking at things but it did deal with a lot of voodoo lore but i think they kind of you know cherry picked the pieces that they wanted to specifically talk about with those things too
2: yeah I remember reading somewhere that originally this was supposed to be based on a short story in 19, from 1906 by Algernon Blackwood. And I believe it said, I'm not certain, but I believe it said that that was based on some ancient mythology about cat people or something like that. So, Okay.
1: I'm just looking here. So, and IMDb trivia is kind of a here and there thing. It might be right, but it might also not. Um, <laughs> this Yovan, so the King John of Serbia was based on a Jovan Ninad, leader of uh, the last independent Serbian state before the Ottoman conquest. Let's see, in 42's Cat People uh, plays a central role in underlying mythology, statues. uh, Yeah, it doesn't specifically say anything about the cat statue thing. Mm -hmm. And that's all the really reference there is.
2: Uh, But, of course, we know there's this cat mythology similar to that, like, in all like in a bunch of different cultures, like ancient Egyptian culture and everywhere. So I'm sure it's, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's based on something like that, you know? They Very could true.
0: have cobbled together their own mythology out of several historical references.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Without doubt.
0: And I don't know if this is important or me just overthinking, but she talks about her people starting to worship Satan and become witches after they were enslaved. And I was just, I was just like, so does that mean that the Mama Lukes taught them witchcraft, or was the witchcraft just a byproduct of becoming slaves?
2: <laughs> oh,
0: they weren't very clear.
2: Yeah,
1: let's see. And again, let's see. Wikipedia says. I mean, the thing is, if you're talking Christian versus Muslim in that time and place, it could very much be a thing be a thing of. Anything that's not Christian is considered automatically devil worship or whatever just because that's kind of how they rolled back in the day. Mhm. Cuz the Mamluks were kind of a kind of a part of the Ottoman Empire which was was largely Muslim.
0: I guess that would kind of make sense. I noticed a lot of stuff in this movie that it seemed like like this movie is not necessarily a Christian movie, but it seemed like they were trying to make it as Like, the main characters were trying to be, like, as clean and pure as possible to, I don't know, show the difference between good and evil. Like, even the affair that is not an affair at all. Like, they so specifically went out of their way to make them not have an affair, but actually be in love with each other, but still want to do the right thing.
1: Well, and that's a couple, there's probably a couple of reasons for that. One, just given the era, you're less than ten years into the Hays Code,
0: I, I wondered about that. Yes,
1: and I don't. I can't tell you how much that affected this movie specifically. I I couldn't find anything on it, but that doesn't mean anything. Um, but that's going to play heavily into it. And obviously, the forties, you're not going to have quite as much of that as you would getting into the fifties and sixties. But it definitely would have played into things like this. Um, the other side of it was a lot of movies of this era. I mean, you look at Frankenstein or or Dracula this kind of, kind of some of the other universal horror movies of the era, there was a very clear definition between good and evil. I mean, look at what, um, Ar- I apologize. What is her name again? It's Iran, Ar- Ar- uh, Ivanya?
0: Oh, the, the character I was, I yeah, arena Ar- Ar- Irina. Ar- 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 I think it's pronounced Ar- Irena because Ar- I was going to say Ar- Irena, but I think it's Ar- Irena.
1: The fact that as she goes along, she dresses all in black. Like even that, like because old westerns, like there was very a very clear definition. You had the people that wore black were the bad guys. The people that wore white or like lighter colors, if it's black and white, were the good guys. And you get a lot of that in this.
2: Mm. I wonder if part of it too is also that Irena's powers are very much tied to like like passion and sexual, like very sexually charged. When she, that's what activates them, and that's what she's concerned about. That. Well, if I get married, I can't show those feelings to my husband because then I'll end up killing him. Right. So I wonder if the attitude that Oliver and Alice have towards each other and towards Irena as they try to help her is meant to showcase, meant to emphasize meant to that contrast between what they're doing and that passion that will activate Irena's dark side.
1: That makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: Well, anyways, back to the legend. Yeah. <laughs> 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 This King John of Serbia apparently came in to free her people and killed all the witches except for some of the wisest and most evil ones who escaped into the mountains. And he asks what all this has to do with her, and she just says, the legend of the witches haunts her village. So she's she never says, like, who she is in regards to this legend. You just kind of assume that she's probably, because of the title, she's one of the cat people
2: yeah and then that's even in the restaurant where that lady comes up to her and calls her my sister w really mm-hmm. kind of puts a period on that or not a period but like emphasizes it
0: yeah well at the end of the scene i thought it was kind of amusing the clock chimes and he says boys who come to tea can't expect to stay to dinner <laughs> <laughs> which is a weird saying and it just made me kind of chuckle
1: well, that needs to be on a t-shirt <laughs>
0: that would be hilarious (laughs) (laughs) and then he sort of invites himself to dinner the next day but she doesn't seem to mind this she likes him so she wants him back and then this is the first part where the first time i watched it i thought this was the next day but now i'm thinking maybe it wasn't because like it seems like so much is happening that There has to be extra time somewhere, so maybe this is not the next day. Maybe this is a week or two later. But he goes to work, and his co-workers hear this strange meowing sound, and a Siamese cat pops out of a shoebox, which he is planning on bringing to her as a gift. And I was like... Has he just been keeping this cat in a box all day?
2: <laughs> I thought that exact same thing. Especially when they put it back in the box once it gets loose. Yeah. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs>
0: like, poor I know kitty. cats like boxes, but I don't think they usually appreciate being trapped
2: in one against their will. <laughs> Especially one that's too small for it. They have to stuff it back in the box. Yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and then its poor tail was, like, hanging out at the end there. It's like, oh... <laughs>
0: And uh, and also, it did not sound like a real cat. It sounded like someone making a weird cat-like noise. Especially that age, like I could maybe buy it if it was an old cat, but this is a kitten, and it was, it was, it did not sound like a kitten.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There was, um, oh, I can't remember who did the movie. I think it was Monster A Go Go or one of those type of movies. (laughs) They they um they faked uh, a phone ringing. It was like. It was the weirdest thing. So it's been done worse by worse movies, I guarantee you.
0: Uh, I'm sure. And I know this is the 40s, but I, I also just have to think, who buys a cat for someone they just met without asking them first? <laughs> well,
1: look at how many... Well, I suppose... I, the, you see how many people give cats and dogs and birds and stuff for Christmas, but that's... You know the person a little bit more, so...
0: Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> well, I know these days it's... I think it's more widely known. You should just you shouldn't just give animals to people as gifts like that. So that's why I say yeah, it's the forties. I guess they they didn't know better. But it's still, that you depending on how much time has passed, it seems like he's just met this person and he's already giving her a cat.
1: Well, she's a lady. How can she not love a cat? I mean, <laughs> come on.
2: And on top of that, Irena seems to have a very complicated relationship with cats after you hear the story about king john she literally has a
0: statue of a cat being impaled so
2: (laughs) yes it's a very interesting choice of gift based on what he's learned about her interest
1: Uh, she's got an impaled statue i'm gonna get her a cat that that'd be perfect just don't get her a sword that's that's really all i need to make sure of really (laughs) right right
0: Sure. And in this whole scene, you meet his co workers who all seem to think that this cat is a great gift. And they actually seem to be happy that he has a girlfriend, even though at this point he's insisting she's not a girlfriend. And I wondered about one of his co workers, Alice. This first scene, I was like, this is one of the times where I was like thinking that this seemed a bit more progressive than you would usually think because it seemed like they were genuine friends with no romantic interests. And I was like, that's kind of cool that they would do something like this back then. (laughs) And it turned out that wasn't the case.
1: (laughs) Well, it could be one of those things, too, where they're like, you know, they kind of have those feelings, but they don't pursue those feelings because of the friendship. And then it's like, yeah, all of a sudden a move is made and it's like, oh, wait, I want that, you know?
0: Yeah. But at this point, she just seems genuinely happy that he has a girlfriend. So to me, it didn't seem like there was anything going on. But apparently she's just really
2: good at hiding her feelings. Thinking about it now, she very much reminds me of one of those like characters you'd see like in a Howard Hawks kind of comedy, like His Girl Friday or something like that.
1: Oh, 100%.
2: She's not quite as fast talking or like quippy as they are in like those Howard Hawks movies, but she's very much kind of that Hawksian female in that. You could tell that she's very capable, but I don't know, she's capable and she's quick witted and... I don't know. I I just think it's very cool in that way. That's one of the reasons Howard Hawks is one of my favorite filmmakers. So I like seeing it here as well.
1: Absolutely. It was an enjoyable part of it. It was, it was refreshing.
2: Yeah. She's probably my favorite character of the movie.
1: Oh, great. But I don't think like, I I think that it's, I mean, we've already talked about Oliver is kind of, he would, yeah, he kind of has that guy role and obviously Arrhenia is, uh, you know, a a cat. So
0: you know so oliver takes this kitten to irena but it hates her and she tells him that cats never like her and wonders if they can exchange it for a different pet and they go to the pet store and it's like this is truly a different time because this is very inhumane by today's standards Little monkeys in tiny cages jumping around, obviously hating their existence.
1: There's like fifteen thousand cats in that that one yes. little pen thing.
0: Birds <laughs> yeah. and kittens all crammed together, like not in the same cage, two different animals, but like tons of kittens in one cage, tons of birds in another cage, and an old lady just asleep in a rocking chair. <laughs> At first I thought it was <laughs> she looked like Granny Clampett from the Beverly Hillbillies. Oh,
1: she kinda did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yes and like everything in this pet store is freaking out which I just assumed was their natural reaction to their living conditions (laughs) (laughs) but apparently it's not because the shopkeeper says she doesn't know what's gotten into them the last time they made this much noise was when an alley cat got in and ate up one of her nice white finches
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know the finch deserved it (laughs) it was being sassy
0: so they have to go outside to talk, and Oliver tells her what they're there for, to exchange the kitten for a canary. And at that point, I was like, okay, this cat lady is going to eat this bird alive. <laughs> 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 and when they're outside, everything has gone quiet inside, so the shopkeeper invites them back in, but Arena does not want to go back in and tells him to pick out one that he likes. Apparently, she would rather wait out in the rain, which you would think would be questionable behavior, but apparently not to him.
1: I mean, she's a cat woman too, so or cat person too. So why, you know, she wouldn't want to be out in the rain. I can't think.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What depends on the cat. My cousin has a cat who, well, had a cat. One one of the cats in the past loved baths. He would like swim around. So.
1: Aw, that sounds adorable.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Oliver and the shopkeeper go back inside, and she starts telling him about her brother's wife, who freaks out all the animals as well, particularly the cats because apparently cats can just tell who's not right.
2: That's such an awesome thing to tell somebody who just freaked out all the animals yes. in your pet store <laughs> while standing right that's there. That's what I was thinking.
0: <laughs>
1: well, in her own passive-aggressive way, she was trying to say, hey, you know this lady that's with you? Uh, uh, maybe don't. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, he doesn't take that advice, though. So,
1: Oh, he's in love.
0: Uh, then she apparently has no qualms about giving him a bird, giving a bird to someone she's all but accused of being a twisted evil animal hater. <laughs> <laughs> so he brings this bird out to her and she says that it's sweet. And I was thinking, yes, but in what sense? <laughs>
2: <laughs> More ways than one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Cause at this point I'm thinking this bird is dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so they go back to her place and it, I Again, this is, I'm not sure if some time has passed here or not, because there's, like, a few scenes going back and forth to different places, and I i guess I just have to assume that more time has passed. Like, maybe this is a different day. So he falls asleep on her couch, and when he wakes up, she says she was watching him sleep, which, <laughs> like, maybe some people would find that romantic, but I would find it creepy.
2: Yeah, It's like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and then they both confess their love for each other and at that at this point the first time i watched it i was like i was thinking this was still the next day so i was like okay what's going on here
1: well traditionally in serbian culture if you give someone a canary or if you receive a canary you know you're
0: basically <laughs> betrothed uh, apparently <laughs> So then they have this conversation about how they've never kissed, and that's strange because in America, people who even just think that they're in love kiss, and she seems upset and says she never wanted to love him. She's dreaded this moment. She's been avoiding falling in love, and she stays away from people because she's been fleeing her past, and he would never understand. And for some reason, he thinks that this has something to do with the story of King John and the Witches, which it does, but like... Unless she's repeated this story multiple times, he heard this story once and, like, now explains all of her weird behavior on this one story, which I guess it, it's true, so. <laughs> and he tries to tell her these are just fairy tales from her childhood, and she's in America now, and she should tell those fairy tales to her children once they're married. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: It's a very early version of mansplaining right there.
0: Yes. <laughs> so then they get married. <laughs> and again I, the first time i watch was like they're two days into this relationship and they're already married
2: <laughs> yeah
1: what, what, what's your question
2: we've seen disney movies before that we know that's how romance works oh,
1: so, so especially in that time and place i mean it's not even a question
0: yeah. okay i, I understand <laughs> So they have this big wedding dinner at a Serbian restaurant, and his co-workers talk about how strange his wife is, but I think it's Alice defends her and seems like she wants to be friends with her. And then this stern-looking woman shows up, who one of his co-workers describes as looking like a cat, which I was like, okay, she doesn't look like a cat to me. (laughs) I know that they did that because to tie her into this story, but... I mean, put her hair in, like, points to make it look like cat ears.
1: <laughs> well, the yeah. bow on her head kind of gave that impression. Maybe. And I- they, they did also say that, and there was no, it was something off men- offhandedly mentioned with IMDb, but um, the outfit kind of reflects uh, what, I don't think it was Arthur Kitt, one of the ladies that played uh, Catwoman in the 66 Batman.
0: Oh,
2: Julie um, Newmar. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, kind of reflected that look.
0: Well, this would have been before that. Right, so but if there was like, some
1: inspiration for yeah, Julia Namar's look based on this.
0: That would be interesting if true. Well, this woman apparently freaks her out because she crosses herself. She thinks that she's a cat person from her village and Oliver just laughs at this idea and calls her a crazy kid. So they go back home and then she's all upset again and she talks about wanting to be his wife but she just needs more time which I wondered if that was supposed to be like a haze Code euphemism because they go sleep in separate bedrooms.
1: (laughs) Well that's kind of that whole era that way anything that kind of relates back to that so.
2: There's a scene that made me think of that later which doesn't make sense in the context of this movie with the passion thing and all but the first night I think where he stays at her house they kind of fade out and they fade back in later and it's dark and they're listening to the To the lion's roar and he's kind of sitting there with his cigarette and she's standing there and it was like that almost seems like something that they were implying that they did in between like that fade out and that fade back in very much a haze code thing but that doesn't really make sense in the context of the movie but
0: yeah for this movie it doesn't make sense but i i can see why you might think that yeah definitely anyhow (laughs) so after this she's alone in her bedroom and you hear a creepy cat yowl from far away and that one I thought was actually creepy like for most of this movie so far I've kind of been laughing at the corniness but that yowl did actually sound creepy at this point
2: yeah and it's very atmospheric too yeah just that specific cat sound effect that they did along with all the other cat imagery you see scattered mm-hmm. throughout the whole movie
0: so sometime later she goes back to the zoo And she tells the zookeeper that she's been married a month, and he makes some remark about her not being happy because nobody visits the leopard when they're happy. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, this guy hates these cats for some reason.
1: Oh, yeah, he's very anti-cat. I think he's a dog person.
0: (laughs) He says that all the monkeys and the aviary get the happy customers. (laughs) I just thought the way he talked was just so weird. And she calls the panther beautiful, and he acts offended at this. (laughs) He (laughs) says the panther is not beautiful, he's evil. And then he quotes Revelation, something about an evil beast like a leopard that wasn't a leopard, but like a leopard, which apparently fits this guy. Except, like, a black panther is a leopard. They're like melanistic leopards. Like, if, if you look really close, they still have the spots. It's the same creature. So he doesn't know what he's talking about.
1: <laughs> well, and it's stuff like that, someone's interpretation of something like that, that, you know, ultimately gave, like, say, Black Cats a bad name generally, too, because they're yeah. black, you know? Yeah. All that crap and just,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. That character kind of reminds me of kind of an archetypal character, kind of like the Quentin Jaws kind of the guy who knows all this lore about the animal or the monster or whatever and the way he says it is always kind of cryptic and weird and kind of quirky of course this guy doesn't get the benefit that quentin does of having more than one scene in the movie where he actually gets to talk but very much kind of that same archetype of the guy who has all the lore and everything
0: sort of except he doesn't say anything that's ever true
2: (laughs) that is also (laughs) true Yes. Like,
0: even even the, the Revelation quote, because I thought I knew what he was talking about, and I looked it up, and I was correct. The creature he's talking about in Revelation, like, it says at one point that it's like a leopard, but the rest of it is nothing at all like a leopard. <laughs> it has seven heads and ten horns, ten crowns on each horn, and its feet are like a bear, and its mouth is like a lion. So, like, yeah, there is a phrase in all of that that says it was like a leopard, but, like, none of that is, like, a leopard. And if you saw something that looked like this thing, you would never mistake it for being a leopard.
1: <laughs> I mean, are you sure? It sounds awful, <laughs> an awful lot like a cat.
0: Uh, I just, I thought it was kind of ridiculous. Like, this guy seems like he knows everything, but he actually knows nothing. And I don't know how much of that is on purpose.
1: Well, he's very much like that, like the guy that walks around with a sandwich board that says the end is nigh, you know?
0: (laughs) Kinda. (laughs) Are you enjoying this episode of the podcast? Do you want more content for me and my friends on the iHeartMovies Podcast Network? We have exclusive bonus episodes, extended episodes, preview content, and more waiting for you right now on Patreon. Patrons also get the chance to request episodes, so if you want me to cover something I've never done before, sign up and let me know. So after this, she leaves and goes home, and this is where she's drawing again. Uh, But the most shocking thing to me in this scene was that the bird was still alive. (laughs) Like, I assumed that she ate that thing long ago. (laughs) I was like, wait, it's still alive? (laughs) (laughs) except it's not long for this world because she's like chasing it around the cage with her hand for some reason. And then it drops dead.
1: Maybe we're just playing dead.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, even if it was, it's not long for the world still. Cause of what's coming next.
2: True. Very true. I felt so bad for the canary. And I literally found myself saying to the screen, leave the poor bird alone, like <laughs> out loud to the TV <laughs> or to the screen alone
0: uh, i was just hoping that they didn't actually use a real bird for this i'm sure they probably did because it was the 1940s but yeah well, i
1: know what they needed to do to um irania is they needed to get out the squirt bottle and go no no <laughs> bad kitty <laughs> too much catnip no treats
0: so when the bird dropped dead at this point i was like okay now she's just gonna eat this thing <laughs> but she still doesn't. She finds a little box, puts it in, and takes it to the zoo and checks it into leopard cage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All those feathers cannot be good for the jaguar or for the leopard.
0: This, this is so weird. <laughs> like none of this is supposed to be funny, but it, it cracked me up. <laughs> so then she goes home and tells Oliver what happened and tells him that she had no choice and that she's scaring herself with her behavior. And at this point, I was like, if this wasn't a horror movie where her fears are actually true, I would be thinking she needs therapy. And I, I was thinking that this guy is about as weird as she is for not finding any of this strange, except finally the movie does something seemingly intelligent because he agrees with me. <laughs> he <laughs> wants to get
2: her a psychiatrist. <laughs> it's
0: like, finally, he's he's doing something smart.
2: <laughs> Yay! Except the therapist is not that great as as we're about to get into. (laughs) Yeah. So she
0: goes to the psychiatrist and basically gives him her story. This is where you get that she thinks that she will kill him if she kisses him. And then I was thinking, so did they just never kiss? Like even at their wedding? It's (laughs) like, wouldn't the people who are watching the marriage question this?
1: well but it's uh not to say that there weren't pdas back in the 40s but i think you kept that stuff a lot more kind of on the dl so it was even more... at a
0: wedding like that that was the thing that got me it was like even at the wedding
1: well if they did a justice of the peace there's not i mean you'd have your i, I suppose because you, you
0: actually wouldn't... didn't see the wedding you saw the no. the feast afterwards maybe okay well, that clears that up for me then.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, they knew each other for you know three days. They got married and spent the spent the night at a at a restaurant. I mean, you know, she got a big flower. That was the most important thing.
2: <laughs> Side note: This guy's therapy office is like. And I saw this time. I was like, if my therapist's office looked like that, I would not go back to that psychiatrist again. Like well, neither did some... she. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. <laughs> but, but but it's like completely black, except with like one light blazing right on her face, <laughs> doing this thing, and it's like, this is supposed to make me feel comfortable. <laughs> I do not feel comfortable sharing my <laughs> feelings with you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so with this scene, you get her tragic backstory. Apparently her father disappeared in her childhood, and then all the kids in her village made fun of her and called her mother a witch, or cat woman, so uh, apparently kids are cruel even back then. And that's like psychotic behavior. It seems like but it they were as cruel. insightful
1: as the cat was in knowing that she was a cat person.
0: I guess that's true. Maybe they were just trying to warn her, hey, your mom's a cat lady. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't no, not that her. kind of cat lady.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the psychiatrist tells her that they're going to fix her. And she wants to know what to tell Oliver, but he tells her to tell him nothing, which seems counterintuitive to me, but I guess it's the 40s, so (laughs) I had to explain away a lot of strange behavior, by I guess it was the 40s. (laughs)
1: Well, no, back then you stuffed it. You didn't, you didn't, uh, (laughs) you work for your husband and that's, you know, you keep your problems to yourself because you don't want to burden him with your, with your, you know issues he's got enough to worry about. In theory at least.
0: Yeah. So she goes home and then she finds Oliver and Alice talking. Apparently Alice was the one who recommended the psychiatrist. So now she's upset because she didn't want anyone to know about this and she's mad that Oliver told Alice, even if it was to get her some help. At this point I was I wondered again about Oliver and Alice, but I was still giving the movie the benefit of the doubt. Like, maybe they really are just platonic BFFs with no ulterior motives. <laughs> so she goes to bed angry, and in the middle of the night, she hears the creepy yowling again. And she she goes, how does she get into the zoo at night? <laughs> like, does she oh, cr- back climb then, over everything, a fence?
1: Everything was just, just open back then. You'd walk into the bank, into the vault at, you know, three in the morning.
2: No biggie. <laughs> well, she's a cat. Cats climb walls and stuff. I guess he just thought that would look too goofy to show on screen like, like let's not wreck the mood that way it could also be. True.
1: <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna say uh the very uh very well worn trope of uh because movie yes
0: yes <laughs> so after her midnight stroll she goes home and Oliver apologizes again she she says that he should never make her jealous and whatever is in her is held in when she's happy. So then, I don't know how much more time passes, but you have another scene of him at work, and I'm assuming it's a while later. So he's talking to Alice and apparently having an off day. So Alice suggests they go have a smoke over by the water cooler. (laughs) And I was like, ah, the 40s. (laughs) (laughs) So he tells her what's going on, and you can tell it's sometime later because he says he's recently talked to Irene psychiatrist and he says that she never went back after that first day and then he talks about how he's never been unhappy before he had a great childhood he loves his job and his co-workers and apparently this is enough to get to Alice because she starts tearing up and she says she just can't bear to see him like this because she loves him too much but just forget it because he already has Irina and he says well I don't know all this trouble makes me wonder if I even know what love really is he doesn't even know if he's in love with her
1: but it seems so right in that spur of the moment when they were like, hey, marry me.
0: <laughs> uh, Alice basically just has another random lo- monologue about love and how she, much she loves him. And the way the way she's acted through the whole movie to now, it just seems out of left field. So I think she's she just is really good at hiding this, apparently, until she's not. So, he says that he doesn't know how he feels about Irina. He thinks he might be more drawn to her than in love with her. He thinks he doesn't really even know her, and in many ways, they're strangers. And at that point, I was like, that's what I've been saying for this whole movie. This is what happens when you propose to someone after knowing them for two days. (laughs) 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 But
1: do they ever listen to you, John? (laughs) No. Exactly.
0: So... At this point, Irene is back at the big cats, and she sees that the zookeeper has left a key in the cage, so she brings it back to him, and he basically just laughs it off and says he always does that, but it's fine, because nobody would want to steal one of them anyway.
1: <laughs> That's right, they are evil.
2: <laughs> I guess he figured, well, the gate is still closed, technically. It's not <laughs> like it's hanging open, so, eh, who cares? <laughs> but still. <laughs>
0: The movie's whole message seems to be about the evil within humanity. So you would think that this guy would be a little more cautious.
1: (laughs) He's just a janitor. He doesn't owe anybody, you know, that much. And plus he's in his last couple of years of working there. So yeah, no.
2: (laughs) He's he's playing it chill. Unless this is his way of like toying with evil, the way that the psychiatrist mentions or whatever, like messing with that evil side of you. Let me leave this key here. Let's see what happens. (laughs)
0: So at this point the doctor comes up and he has this melodramatic monologue about how great it is that she's avoiding the temptation within all mankind to release evil upon the world. <laughs> and I was like Yeah, because
1: we're all walking nuclear bombs, really.
0: <laughs> I was like, I know she's confessed to some weird stuff, but it seems rather unprofessional to track her down to give her a sermon in public. <laughs> So after the meeting with the psychiatrist, she basically brushes him off and says that he's trying to heal her mind, but she says it's her soul that's troubled and therefore he can't help her. So she leaves.
2: And then he's kind of rude to her as he's like, oh, well, psychiatrists have been trying for decades to figure out the difference between the the mind and the soul. And you figured it out in such and such a time. And it's like, that's not a very good way to speak to one of your patients. in such a condescending, rude kind of way like that.
1: It's tough love, you know
2: <laughs> that that is true, but at the same time, it's like that's another of those things that's gonna make me think, do I really want to share my innermost thoughts and feelings with you <laughs> with you, all people?
0: Well, you, Probably get, not. you find out later <laughs> how he's not really into medical ethics, so
2: that's yeah. also true,
0: <laughs> so she goes home, talks to Oliver, they basically have a confrontation, he ends up mentioning Alice, which she bristles at. And he decides that they need to cool down, so he's going to go back to work. But, like, it's night. (laughs) What? Okay. So he goes to work, but there's a cleaning lady blocking the door. Like, she's cleaning in between the revolving doors. So apparently he can't go in. So he says he's going to go get a cup of coffee before he goes to work. He'll be back in a few minutes. And then there was this weird little scene where he goes to the restaurant, and the waitress offers him chicken gumbo. And he refuses. He just wants apple pie and coffee. And she just seems offended.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't anybody like chicken gumbo? (laughs) It is a weird line. (laughs) (laughs)
0: It's like She must have been working on this all day and she can't get anybody to get it. (laughs) She seemed like a character, though. I kind of wanted more of her. (laughs) But during all this time, Alice is still at work by herself. And Irena calls the office. But when she picks up, Irena doesn't say anything and hangs up. And there's there's a cat at the office for some reason, and Alice says to him, John Paul Jones, don't you hate it when people do that? And I thought that she was t- named him after some musician, because I know there was a musician named John Paul Jones. So I looked him up on Wikipedia and found out he was a member of Led Zeppelin, but he was born four years after this movie came out. So I started reading to figure out if I could figure out what she was talking about, what she would have named this guy after and maybe the led zeppelin guy was named after somebody else except john paul jones was stage name that he adopted and apparently he'd seen the name on a movie poster and liked it but the movie that he'd seen and took the name from, was from 1959. So, like, I went down a rabbit hole trying to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> so, her cat wasn't named after that movie. So, I went to the movie page, and apparently there was a Revolutionary War naval hero, and then everything clicked, because Oliver and Alice designed ships. So, of course, their office cat would be named after a naval hero.
2: <laughs> and I love how they call him by his full name, too. Yes. That's just John. <laughs>
0: john paul jones (laughs) so after this phone call she goes home and irena is on her way there and when alice gets down to the lobby the cleaning lady tells her that she just missed oliver he was going around the corner for coffee so she decides to head there as well and i don't know how long she's there with him because you don't really get their conversation it's cutting between them and irena heading in their direction But eventually, she tells him that he needs to go home and make up with Irena. So they walk together for a while, and then they need to go in separate directions, and they part ways. But of course, Irena is following them at this point and infers the worst. And I mean, to be fair, even though she doesn't know, Alice did confess her love to Oliver earlier, so (laughs) she's not totally wrong to be worried about this. Very true. (laughs) But that doesn't excuse this behavior, though, because as soon as Oliver's out of sight, she follows Alice down a dark alley. And I, I actually really liked this scene. There's no music. It's just like quiet shots of them and and or their legs illuminated under lampposts. And all you hear is the footsteps. And I really liked that scene.
2: Yeah, so do I. And what I another thing I like about it is that you hear the footsteps and then when Alice stops on the footsteps, that stops and you, she looks behind her. You never see anything behind her, but Even though Alice says she saw something Mm -hmm. later. But I really like that, too. It's another case of letting your imagination fill in the blanks. Yes. And wondering what's around that corner. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. When you you expect something, especially then, you didn't get the kind of psych level of, like, you know, psych kind of a thing. But they do pull one of those with this, and it's kind of cool the way they do it, where the bus pulls up.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, before the bus came up, I was just like, well, Alice is a goner. (laughs) Because <laughs> I'm I'm still thinking of this as like maybe a more modern horror movie. Like I expected something more dramatic and violent to happen. And I'm I'm kind of glad it didn't. Like you get some towards the end with the psychiatrist, but I liked how they did it. You just kind of assume what's gonna happen and then it doesn't happen.
1: It's a very subtle horror movie.
0: Yeah.
2: And even the jump scares, like of course that because that was one of the first jump scares. Like even that is very I don't know. I like the way it worked. It didn't try too hard to get you to to leap, you know. It still felt kind of natural, but it still worked.
0: I had read before I watched the movie that this movie was like where jump scares originated. Like ah. this was like the first movie to do that. So I was kind of expecting something bigger. And I guess if it's going to be the first one, it wouldn't be the same type of jump scare that you're used to. But if it's true that this is where it originated, that is cool. And it is an interesting way that they did the, I don't know how many of these could be called jump scares, because they weren't really that much of a jump to me, but maybe they would have been back in the 40s.
2: Apparently they were called the Luton bus before they were called jump scares because of this very scene.
0: (laughs) Oh, nice. Okay. Cool. So after Alice gets on this bus, then you get a random shot of the cats in the zoo, and a herd of sheep who are, like, walking over some dead sheep. And I wondered how this was all shot. It's like, did they borrow some sheep on their way to becoming mutton and just use them? <laughs> like, are they well, actually they dead tranked, here?
1: They could have tranked the sheep that were down and out, too.
0: They could have. I'm just, I think I'm just being too cynical because it's the 40s and I know how they treated animals.
1: I mean, I think that's a fair assumption. I don't, like, it depended on the animal, too, to some extent, and, you know, who was running the production and everything. But, yeah, yeah. That, that's understandable to be skeptical of how animals are treated.
2: Yeah.
0: But the farmer of this, of all these sheep, sees some big cat footprints and starts blowing his whistle. And then Irina is taking a cab home and Oliver's waiting for her. But... She pulls away from him and says, don't touch me. And he asks for forgiveness. And she just says that she forgives him without looking at him and goes to a room. And then she just cries in the bathtub. And then she goes to bed and dreams about animated cats and King John. While the doctor's words about loosing evil on the world play over and over. Like the same clip, just repeated over and over.
1: Well, they want to make sure that you get it.
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) And that scene was actually kind of eerie until that moment when King John actually showed up. And (laughs) and then it it kind of ruined things for me to see the psychiatrist, if I remember correctly, in that suit. And it was like, okay, the mood is destroyed for me
1: now. (laughs) Was Oliver King John in that? Or was it
2: the the psychologist? I believe it was the psychologist, if I'm remembering correctly. But I could be wrong.
1: Well, I ask because, like, with what comes later... With You know, his he's got the cane that has the sword inside of it. It kind of is showing us ahead what's happening. What's the term? Foreshadowing.
2: Yeah, okay. that is true.
0: I'm going to skip through the movie yeah. and see if I can see. <laughs> I didn't notice, but...
1: Because it looks... They, being that they show his face, the way that they show his face, I almost think it would have to be one or the other. From the perspective of how things go down, it would make more sense that it's a psychologist, but I, I didn't...
0: It is almost certainly Dr. Judd. The king has a mustache.
1: Ah, there (laughs) you go.
0: Cool. I did not notice that. So good eye.
1: Yay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So after this dream, the next day she goes back to the zoo. And of course, the zookeeper has left his key in the cage again. So she steals it. And then we get a scene in a museum. And I'm not sure how much time has passed at this point. Oliver is there with both Irina and Alice. He and Alice are, like, because they've designed boats, they're, like, really into boats. And he tells Irina that she should go look at something else because they don't want her to be bored while they basically look at work stuff. <laughs> and I, I'm like, if you want to fix things with your wife, this is not the way to do it.
2: <laughs> yeah, Go somewhere else while we do this thing. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll be with you later.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like... I I know they're they're like long-time friends, but even though I Irina has not actually seen anything she like we have and she has every right to be suspicious of her. Like even though Alice is technically a much better fit for him in the long run still. He's married to Irina. So she goes off by herself looking crestfallen and, and then we get another cut and I have no idea how much time has passed here and you have Alice exiting a cab And I'm assuming this is where she lives. It seems like it's a hotel, but maybe it's just a fancy apartment. And there's a lady at the front desk, and she asks her for a key to the pool and admires her kitten. And I was thinking, what is with this movie and people having cats at work? (laughs) I mean, it kind of seems like a great idea. Now I kind of want a cat for my office. (laughs) 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 So she heads off to the pool, and the kitten follows her.
1: That's an adorable kitten, too. It's so cute. Oh, my God. It is. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Then you see Irena getting out of another cab, and she goes in to ask about Alice, and the woman at the desk sends her down to the pool after her. And then you see Alice. She's gotten changed. She's starting to walk out of where she was, but then the kitten starts acting all scared, and Alice laughs it off for some reason which i would not do if i had a cat with me alone and the cat is freaking out for no reason <laughs> i would not laugh that off yeah. and then she turns the lights out I'm like okay well i this this is the kind of thing where tropes have been born from of people just acting dumb in a horror movie <laughs> <laughs> so she starts walking towards the stairway but then stops and you hear this growling. And a big shadow coming down the stairs. And then, for some reason, she turns around and runs into the pool, which seems like the dumbest idea. (laughs) Like, I know people think that cats hate water, but a lot of big cats love water. And jaguars are good swimmers. So... (laughs) Not that she knows that this is a jaguar, but still, I would not run towards the water and jump in when there's some huge hulking creature coming down the <laughs> stairs after me.
2: <laughs> but they got to stir up the water for the cool shadow, water shadow, and cat shadow thing that happens later. She knows that you got to get the good visual one way or another.
0: <laughs> That's true. Like the way that they've done this, I, I mean, I aside from her not acting as intelligent as you would think that she would. I do like the scene.
2: Yes.
1: It is very well done.
0: Yeah. You get like a prolonged scene of her hearing noises, growls, seeing shadows, and there's a cat scream. And then she starts screaming and that alerts the staff, the lady at the front desk and a maid come running to find her. And then suddenly Irena's is there turning on the light and they ask what the matter is. And she just shrugs it off as getting too frightened uh, when Irena showed up unexpectedly and she looks a bit too pleased with herself and acts like she's just looking for Oliver and Alice tells her that they waited for her but she didn't show so they went home
2: and she seems a little like too not surprised that Irena is there it's like why would she be there at all she's just oh hi well not oh hi (laughs) but she doesn't like what are you doing here (laughs) you know
1: (laughs) She's kind of like, what's up? How's it going? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What are you doing in the pool?
0: (laughs) So Irena heads home as well, and Alice gets out of the pool. But the woman from the desk gets her her robe, and they discover that it has been shredded. So Alice calls the doctor and tells him what she thinks is going on. She thinks that Irena's stories are true, and she's changing a cat trying to kill her, which he just laughs at. And then she shows him the robe, and he decides he needs to talk to Irena again. And Irena tells him that she's been having lapses in memory. She can't account for chunks of time. And he thinks she's lying and asks about her fear of kissing her husband, wondering what she truly believes about this. Would she actually transform and kill him? And then he wonders if it would happen if they kissed... And um, at this point, I'm like, this is some serious breaching of medical ethics here. What is with this guy? <laughs> like, he seemed like he was actually friends with Alice and Oliver. So he's just betraying everybody at this point.
2: I wonder if it's one of those things where it's like, we have to show that this guy is bad. So, when, so that yeah. when he gets his, yes. people, people aren't upset or angry.
0: That's what I was thinking, because they've already played up how great of a person Oliver is. And even Alice, like that, even though they love each other, they they go out of their way to make sure that, you know, they are not actually having an affair. Like, yes, they love each other, but they're not acting on those feelings other than her tearful confession. Yeah. So then he has this whole monologue about patients trying to fool him and tells her that she's this close to insanity, and he could have her put away if she doesn't get rid of her fantasies, and she's too fixated on her stories from her village, and tells her to get rid of all her cat objects. So, she leaves, and when she's on her way out, she says it's the first time that he's really helped her. (laughs) I'm just like, okay, what? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, is this just bad writing, or is this her changing her perspective and this guy is one step closer to being lunch. <laughs> 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 but after this, Irina goes home. She tells Oliver that she has been cured, which seems to come out of nowhere. But he tells her it's too late. She took too long. Now he loves Alice and he's going to give her a divorce. It's which seemed like a weird way to put that. But I, then I was thinking, like, maybe that was, like, the way the law worked. Like, back then, did... husband have to give the wife a divorce i don't know it seemed like a weird phrasing but maybe it was because of what time it was
1: honestly don't know about that one you don't really like they don't really bring up divorce in a lot of movies of this era
0: yeah that's true yeah i don't know it just seemed like weird phrasing that i don't know but of course she's upset about this but i'm Like, I'm not sure what she's doing at this point, because she, like, goes over the couch, and she's, like, whispering and muttering to herself, and I don't know what she said. I'm like, I didn't have subtitles, so I have no idea what she was saying to herself. He basically tells her that she's acting insane, and she tells him to leave. And then when he's gone, she claws the couch and leaves giant tears in the fabric. And then I'm not sure how much time passes here. Oliver and Alice go to the restaurant with the doctor... And he tells them that Irena needs to be put away, but he thinks that he should have their marriage annulled so that he can marry Alice. But I'm also wondering if he's saying that so that he can marry Irena.
1: More than likely. Or at least use it over her head as a, well, I can either put you away or you can marry me kind of a deal.
0: Yeah, yeah, probably.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: But he says the law says that you cannot divorce an insane person, which I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if they just made that up for the movie.
2: I believe that is true. I've heard that mentioned, like, in other... I've seen that used as a plot point, like, on other TV shows. Like, I know Downton Abbey uses that as a plot point during one of the seasons. Mm. So, okay. I've heard it, yeah, before.
0: But again, you have Oliver and Alice like, made out to be, like, the most respectable they, they decide the right thing would be to take care of Irena, so they tell the doctor to get the papers together to have her put away. So they're not planning on getting married. He's going to stay married to Irena and just get her help. So they all go to meet Irena, but they apparently wait for her over an hour and a half, and she never shows. And Oliver says she's probably walking in the park. But instead of going to look for her, Alice suggests they go back to work. <laughs> I'm like, there's <laughs> a lot of after hours working on going on at the ship design place. <laughs> <laughs> they must really like their work.
1: I mean, they're building ships. How could how could you not, right?
0: I suppose. So they all leave together, but the doctor realizes that he's left his walking stick behind. So he goes back to get it. And like, that's the whole scene. I don't know. Like, he does something at the door. And I'm just wondering if he's leaving it unlocked so he can go back in later. Because, like, there's a scene later where he's in their apartment, so I think maybe that was the point of the scene. I wasn't exactly sure. I don't know how much of that was him planning to come back or not.
2: I believe so. I very much got the impression that he left his walking stick behind on purpose, you know, so he could come back. So I'm pretty sure, yeah, that's the impression I got from that scene anyway. Yeah, I,
0: I didn't get it the first time I watched it, but watching it a second time, I wondered if that's what was going on.
1: He's very sneaky, sneaky, sir
0: yes so oliver and alice go back to work they're 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 like designing the ship in the dark they have like one light on like (laughs) okay mood lighting i guess (laughs) but then the phone is ringing and alice says that it was it's like it's the last time that this happened when she was working alone she said no one was speaking to her and now she thinks that it was irena and she wants to leave But as she's talking, you can hear, like, I'm pretty sure you can hear, like, a very quiet growl in the background, which I wasn't sure if that was what was, like, that was on purpose or me. Like, I I don't know. But it was, if it was, I thought it was really creepy. And I I kind of liked the touch because it was so quiet. And then they go to leave, but they discover that they've been locked in. And now there's a Black Panther in the room with them. So they get backed into a corner, and he picks up one of his measuring tools that they were using for their design. I'm not sure what the name of it, but it it's like, it shows up as a cross when they're in a shadow, which I'm sure is on purpose. And he, he calls to Irena and says, in the name of God, leave us in peace, which apparently works because she does. <laughs> and now the is open and they can
2: leave. I remember reading when I was doing research for this, that either Jacques Tourneur or Val Luton, can't remember which one, did not like the way that they shot that scene. Because RKO insisted, okay, we have to make sure that the audience says that there's a panther in the room. So we have to show something moving around the tables and so on. And either Luton or Tourneur did not want to show the panther in the room. They wanted it to be ambiguous, kind of like the other earlier scare scenes. So Mm. just to maybe imply, like, is this in their minds? Are they just feeling guilty or what? Yeah, that's an interesting behind-the-scenes tidbit there. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, it goes to show that, I mean, as much then as now, studio interference is is alive (laughs) and well.
2: (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So they
0: leave, but when they get downstairs, the revolving door is spinning as if somebody had just gone through it, and Alice recognizes Irina's perfume. So they go outside, and Alice says she needs a drink. Then we go back to Irina's apartment, and... The doctor is there i'm not sure if this is like he's left and come back or if he never left but the phone rings and he picks it up and i don't know the the i had questions about all of this i'm not sure why alice and oliver knew he would be there but they warn him that irena might be coming and suddenly she's there so he hangs up the phone and then he like starts weirdly turning on the charm and like trying to sweet talk her and embracing her and saying that he never believed her stories and this is again I was like is this like the 1940s version of negging basically <laughs> and I like I, I haven't watched a ton of old movies but you kind of get similar scenes in old movies and it's like maybe the concept of negging is nothing new and we've just given something like an old action and a new name
1: and depends on who was doing it too at the time you know mm,
0: yeah But then he kisses her, and you don't see it, but she obviously transforms. And I kind of like that, because yes, it would have been cool to see her transform, but also it probably wouldn't have looked very good. So I like that they did the best that they could with what they had, and they kind of more relied on like changing the lighting on her face, and then showing a lot of shadows, and then one shot of a cat jumping on him.
1: Which even that part for the time, even if you had like a trained leopard, it still would have been quite oh, a thing yeah. to make oh, sure that. that they were, that your stunt man looked enough like your, your actor and everything else too.
2: Yeah, I would not have wanted to be the stunt
0: guy in that scene.
1: <laughs> Definitely not.
2: And It was another neat opportunity to do like shadow work, like they were doing throughout the rest of the movie, having the thing play out, the attack play out in shadow, which I thought was mm-hmm. really cool.
0: Yeah. And then it looks like he stabs her, but she ends up killing him anyway, just as Oliver and Alice enter the building, and they hear the commotion, the screaming, and they run upstairs, but you see Irena, back in human form, kind of sneaking out and hiding from them as they go in to discover his body.
1: So I, I had to laugh at something here. Like, they see the the door swinging and they smell her perfume and stuff. She steps back into an alcove just as they're coming up the stairs. The plant was still shaking. It's like, oh, come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not the point, but I had to laugh. It's like you were so on it before and, and now you're not.
0: <laughs> like you said earlier, because movie.
1: <laughs> true. True. Very true. <laughs>
0: And then you also have the scene with two elderly neighbors there, and one of them telling him that they called the police as soon as they heard the racket. She seems like weirdly proud of herself, and neither of them seem that phased that there's literally a man mauled to death right in front of them.
1: Oh, it's such an odd, like it's that nosy neighbor, like yes. uh, uh, Mrs. Kravitz from uh, *Was the Witched*, Witch, yeah, kind of that that whole like level of neighbor.
0: Yeah. She just, she seems completely unfazed. There's a dead body right in front of them. And,
1: eh, so. you know, whatever. <laughs> Third one this week. <laughs>
0: <laughs> one of them goes over to him, but the other one yells that she's not supposed to touch anything until the police get there. It's <laughs> like how much experience I guess we've do these been through two this. Old... <laughs> uh, yeah. I was like, how much experience do these two old ladies have with active crime scenes?
1: <laughs> well, you know how Oliver at one point said you never know what's hiding behind the facade of a brownstone? Yeah, it's essentially this. Yeah. It's like murder she wrote 1940s edition. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and at this point. Oliver and Alice notice the Doctor's cane, which was also a sword, broken in half, and they say they need to find Irena. And during all this, she's gone back to the zoo. She's holding her shoulder and stumbling a bit. She's got like a coat draped over her, so you can't really see what's going on, but she's obviously been injured. She goes and unlocks the Panther's cage for some reason, and it leaps past her, knocking her to the ground. And now you can see that she's been completely run through by the sword. Then when she hits the ground, she just goes still and the panther runs off and is immediately hit by a car. <laughs> and what and the,
1: the whatever they Oh, and then the, the poor Panther, like what whatever they use to represent a panther that's been hit, I don't know what the hell that was, but that was not a panther.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad because with the nineteen forties you never know they could have killed an yeah. animal.
1: Point taken. <laughs> At least
0: the panther was sort of safe. I mean, he still has to live in a cement cage, but
2: one thing I liked at the very end was that Limber Oliver says she never lied to us. And it kind of reminded me of like the end of like something like King Kong, where it was beauty killed the beast or <laughs> something <laughs> like that, you know, <laughs> kind of those endings that you get where like, it's the end of a horror movie, but it's not one of the one of the ones that they want you to leave the theater feeling like really angry at the villain, like hating them, you know, so they always end up like I kind of like that poetic note, you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: I got thinking about it, too. There was a line at the very open that uh, Dr. Lewis uh, Judd had, too. And I don't remember what it was, but it was that same kind of a poetic thing.
0: There was, there was some sort of a poem thing at the beginning and end of the movie, and I didn't write them down. I suppose I could check. I, like, I didn't really understand what they were going for with them. Like, they seemed to have, like, I'm sure they had some sort of a reason for including these okay so it opens even as fog continues to lie in the valleys so does ancient sin cling to the low places the depressions in the world consciousness and apparently this is from the anatomy of atavism by dr lewis judd so dr judd was the character so is this something that they have written for this movie or was it from something else
1: i have no idea
2: yeah no idea (laughs)
1: Let me look it up here quick. Let's see.
0: It, uh, like, it doesn't seem like something this character would have written because he's all psychology over superstition. And this seems like it would take the idea too seriously because it talks about the ancient sin. And it doesn't seem like something that he would say.
2: For sure.
1: Well, he, repl- <laughs> he reprised his role of Dr. Lewis Judd in The Seventh Victim.
0: I, I read uh, that he, he came back for another movie and they just kind of acted like he hadn't been killed in this one.
1: <laughs> eh, they do that a lot. There was, um, who was the guy? Don Dohler. He did a series of like like super low budget kind of sci-fi movies that they were essentially the same story, but it was done three different times. And like you can see the wardrobe change from the, se- like the late 60s to the 70s to the 80s. But his whole cast of characters essentially played the same people plus additionally other characters too but um yeah um let's see so it says here opening credits end with a co- a quote attributed to Dr. Lewis Judd who is the name of a psychiatrist in the movie that's kind of all it says
0: I guess it must have just been written for the movie then I assumed that it was some sort of poetry that they thought fit the mood of the movie but maybe they just wrote it themselves and were like oh yes I am profound.
1: (laughs) It's no Twas Beauty Killed the Beast.
0: It's (laughs) more
1: like a Blue Plate special on a, you know, Tuesday night.
0: And I wasn't sure, because you can't really see, but when she died, like obviously at first she's still her, but did she turn back into a panther? Because you never see her face again. But then on the screen with all the words, you can't really see, it's like a, a just a black shape. And she did have a fur coat. So I don't know. I couldn't tell if she was still a panther. She'd turned back into a panther or not.
2: I
1: kind of wondered that too.
2: I wonder if they left that ambiguous on purpose. This is part of that whole mood they were trying to evoke. Quite possibly.
0: Yeah. So that's cat people. <laughs> it's not what I expected, but I think I enjoyed it for what it was. It wasn't like my normal cup of tea, but it was pretty good for an old 1940s horror movie.
2: Definitely. And I appreciate getting to watch it again, because it's one of those movies that's, it's just good to know, like, especially if you're trying to write in the, in the genre, like I am just to know where things came from and just to go back to the very Mm -hmm. beginning and say, okay, this is where it started just to have that grounding and what you're trying to do so that your work is better for having that knowledge.
0: Yeah.
1: And visually, like just the the way that they use shadow and light and mm-hmm. there's so much just cool bits that that you could draw from. And it's such a like we talked about when we started, Val Lewton has such a specific style in what he does. And that just it's amazing to see to see what goes down with that, you know, and to see it kind of translated through uh Jacques Trenor. You know, it's you look at his other works and you can see those those same things coming into play and I love it.
2: And it's inspiring, too, just to know that they were working with such limited resources and limited time to see how necessity really is the mother of invention and it Mm -hmm. ended with this thing that lasted for decades and will last for decades more. It's really inspiring to artists, I think.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Sometimes I think that with the budgets that movies have these days, sometimes I feel like it almost makes the movies worse because they try and do too much. And I almost think that if some movies got their budgets trimmed a bit. They might be more creative with how they did some things
1: well, it really comes down to management though, like and it's it's not a <laughs> it's not an award-winning movie by any stretch, but there was this one that I reviewed called Llamageddon, and it's it's creature feature. It's ridiculous <laughs> and goofy. It was done by um a group of college kids and they did it for three thousand dollars. They used a normal llama, but it was done I think back in the mid twenty teens and What they did with $3,000 because of it was all about the people behind the lens. I've seen people with that same budget and they just made just the worst thing ever. And it wasn't even a budgetary thing. It was the ideas behind it, the people behind it. So with any movie, whether you're talking something like that has budgets of millions, you know, it's that understanding of resources and working within those parameters to make the best thing you can, Mm -hmm. you know, for sure and not leaving it up to, oh, well, you know, this person's acting in it, that's fine, or we have these effects, that's fine, or whatever it might be, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's across the board, whether you're talking something from the earliest silent movie up to something made five minutes ago, you know?
2: Yeah. Definitely. Well, I suppose
0: we can probably call this episode good. Wahoo! <laughs> this turned out really great. I'm glad we did this one, even though this is not what I usually do. I enjoyed Stepping out of the box, I guess.
1: Well, that's that's kind of at least from the times I've, we've worked a lot together. You know, that's kind of been what it's been about. You know, is, yeah. is you kind of exploring outside your comfort zone. Yeah. And comfort zone isn't the right word. you you've you've never said that you weren't up for something different by any stretch. So I appreciate the fact that you saw this movie and you're like, hey, you know what? <laughs> As I stand here in this bathroom, I need to see that damn movie. <laughs> Let's make this happen. Gosh darn it. <laughs>
2: yeah
0: yeah it's a kind of a weird place to take inspiration from, but
1: why <laughs> inspiration can come from anywhere,
0: including a bathroom wall
1: absolutely <laughs> that's half the reason something like that is there you know you're in you know if it's a one a one screen theater or a fifty screen theater those reminders of what you know of the past of what makes movies great and what is possible in the future I, inspiration is is such a it's anywhere. It's everywhere. You know, it's mm-hmm. if you're in the right place to accept it.
2: For sure.
0: Well, I guess we can probably end this one here. Until next time, do you guys want to let people know where they can find you if they want to see more of what you do,
2: AJ? Sure. Yeah, I'm at Twitter at at Howell four eight nine. I have a blog called The Vintage Vestibule, which I update kind of infrequently lately. Unfortunately just because of, of other writing projects. But I'm going to try and get back into that. I have a, a Superman article that I've been toying with writing. So, yeah, that's where you can find me online. Okay, and Nikki?
1: Uh, you can find me on YouTube at Trivial Theater. I do a wide array of random, obscure, and straight-up bad movies in a review format. Uh, you can also see me on Twitter and Instagram at Trivial Theater.
0: Okay, and I will have links to all of the various social medias, and websites for anyone who wants an easy access to them. Okay, well, until next time.